Hey everyone, this is usually the time I tell you about our email newsletter, but I wanted to talk to you about something else. As of January 2023, It's All Journalism is hosted on Spotify's Megaphone platform, so you can subscribe to our podcast there, or you can continue subscribing, listening, or download new episodes of our podcast at Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, or just about anywhere you can find podcasts. But wherever you find us, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode and like and share us on your social media. And now, this week's episode. The way they think about things, the way they study things, the methods they use, who they are, affects what they say. And then, as consequence, affects what the public then sees as being sort of the settled matter about certain political issues. Who reporters choose as the expert sources for their stories has a lot of implications, not the least of which is giving credence to a false narrative or failing to include diversity in our selection process. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Joining me today is Dr. Katie Searles, an associate professor of political communication at Louisiana State University. She's also one of the authors of Constructing Political Expertise in the News, which takes a look at, among other things, what types of political experts are most likely to be on a journalist roster of expert sources. Katie, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you, Michael. Well, when you reached out to us about your book, you said you were a listener. So if you're familiar with our podcast, you know where we begin. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What got you interested in journalism and how'd you end up at LSU? Sure. So yeah, I've been listening for a long time. Big fan. I... I guess you can trace the journey back to when I was editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper. Me too. As is often a story I hear on this podcast. I was actually reflecting on it today before I came on and I was remembering. So I grew up in the South and as you well know, football is close to religion in the South. I deigned to write a couple of pretty controversial op-eds about our football team. And one of them got me in real hot water and I got a lot of threats over it. And, you know, now I actually, in my research and in my work, work with journalists that are being threatened online. And it's kind of funny how that all happens and shakes out. But anyway, that's, that was started my long love affair with journalists. That's um, actually not funny at all. I just wanted to point that out, but please. Yeah, continue. it is. It's sort of it's like you, sort you of have ter- to keep from crying. Yeah. Terrifying in many <laughs> yeah. ways. Yeah. Please, yeah, <laughs> please absolutely. continue. Yeah, that's so that early trauma that now led me to help and support journalists in their work today. But one of the things I also learned early on that is a little bit different from lots of your guests is I loved journalism, loved doing that in high school. But I also realized that while I deeply loved journalism in the news and politics, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to study it. And so that brings me to today where I get to do all those things, work with journalists, talk to journalists, study journalists, but I am not actually in the newsroom. Okay. Well, we need to be studied for sure. And your book is really kind of fascinating. At risk of the podcast eating its own tail because we book experts to talk about their expertise on the subject. So what's wrong with political experts? You know, why is it necessary for us to be looking at them? Part of the reason we wrote this book and I study this topic is because I think that there's nothing wrong with political experts. In fact, I think that they're vitally important not just political experts, but all expert sources and sources in general, really. But I am an expert, so perhaps I'm partial to expert sources. And 
one of the things that I've really been interested in, and part of the reason I'm, I think it's important to study is because expert sources translate complex policy issues to the public and are often really the public's only interaction with experts, right? You know, not all of us are lucky enough to work on a university's campus where we get to interact with experts all the time. Oftentimes expert sources are the public's only interaction with experts. And so who gets to speak as an expert and what they say has profound importance for policy discourse and for whom the, the public perceives as an expert. My first impression when you, you sort of, you know, told us about this book was that, oh yeah, that she's talking about the talking heads that are on cable news, which is part of it, but it's actually really <laughs> any reporter who is going to somebody who has deep knowledge of a, sus a suspect, of a subject. Sometimes and a suspect. <laughs> sometimes a suspect. And you're relying on their greater knowledge to inform your story. So where the question mark comes in, I guess, you know, what is the process that the person uses to identify the source? What does that, like, choice say about maybe the journalist? What does it say about maybe the expert? Is the expert the ideal person or is it somebody that you know that fits sort of a i don't know a preconception or an idea from the the news side of the equation to fill that role so this is part of why this process is so fascinating to study as an academic because it is one of the choices journalists have a lot of control over you know and and otherwise a process that's often has a lot of input from editors, et cetera. So that's part of why it reveals so much and is really interesting. But typically we think about it, and this is still a very grossly simplified way to think about it, but to start with, we think about, you know, a journalist might have a story that they've decided is well-suited to an expert source. You can imagine that, you know, you kind of have an infinite number of expert sources, not quite, but quite a few expert sources that you could reach out to. And uh, you identify some based on, you know, maybe depending on kind of outlet you're at, maybe they're local, maybe they're at, they're at the university nearby, maybe you already know them, maybe they tweet a lot, maybe when you Google them, they come up first, or maybe you just email a bunch of people and they're the ones that respond first, right? So there's lots of like different kinds of factors that can influence who actually gets selected to be on the news. But the kind of implication of this is that the person that gets selected gets to speak for experts on that subject, right? And that matters because despite what we may think, much of science is not settled, right? There's a lot of uncertainty, particularly in politics. Like political science is not a discipline, you know, just to take an example, that's marked by certainty and consensus. So who gets to speak for like, expertise in politics actually matters a lot because the way they think about things, the way they study things, the methods they use, who they are affects what they say. And then as consequence affects what the public then sees as being sort of the settled matter about certain political issues. Yeah. And because we don't have really a, a layer of transparency of, well, why did you pick this person? Because, you know, as you said before, you'd send out a bunch of emails and only one person responded. And then they present whatever their point of view is, which may be based, you know, entirely in fact. It may be partially based in fact. It may be based on something that's been proven wrong. But because you feel that you've made this decision, this is the, the point of view that's going to be sourced in your story. And by choosing them, you give them a degree of legitimacy that, you know, why did your newsroom you know, pick this crazy person to talk. Well, he's the only person that would talk to me. 
And <laughs> there are plenty of journalists who find themselves in that position. And I think maybe we don't do a lot of due diligence and push a little harder than we should. And we end up sometimes, you know, providing a disservice to our audience, I guess. So one thing that's interesting about that point is that, you know, sometimes it's whoever emails you back. Sometimes it's who has the best sort of quote or who's the most certain, right? You know, certain types of people offer different kinds of sound bites, right? Like we know that like women and men talk differently. And sometimes that means that a man that might not be as much of an expert or who may not even be offering what is considered, you know, a frontier work in terms of the, the research may be giving the better quote, right? And so that also plays into the calculus. Yeah. And the headline and the social media, what's going to get eyes on that story, which just another factor that we've got to put on my checklist of things I'm going to have to do now with every story I edit and story I read. Let's talk a little bit about construction of political expertise in the news. The the book that you and several other people wrote, what was it you were trying to uh, determine? Yeah, so it kind of has a, a neat origin story. And I, I want to quickly call out my co-authors, Jana Krupnikov, John Barry Ryan, and Hillary Style, who I couldn't have done this without. But particularly Jana Krupnikov, we started on this journey a long time ago, around 2016. At the time, we were seeing a lot of election coverage that was featuring mostly male political experts, a lot of whom are our colleagues and our friends and our collaborators. And, you know, it starts off as lots of things do, where we kind of were just having conversations when we saw each other at conferences over glasses of wine, maybe more than one at times, where we're just like, why is this happening? Why are we seeing these people, the same people that look very similar, white men over and over, and we're never getting calls. Again, where are the calls? The white men. Yeah. Where are the calls for us? You know, we study American politics, we study campaigns, we study elections, but we're not getting that outreach. So what's going on? And my good friend, Samara Clark, University of Arizona, who has more gumption than the rest of us, kind of said, well, let's do something about it. Stop complaining about it. You know, at happy hour, let's do something. And she did. She started what was a very simplistic WordPress site and just kind of emailed it to all her friends that she knew studied American politics that were women and was like, add your name. Literally in the early days, we were emailing around the password and login information, which like kind of makes my skin crawl now. And she called the website Women Also Know Stuff. And very quickly, it blew up, right? People were really excited, particularly women in political science were really excited that there was a place for us. And the idea was, let's put women experts that study politics on a website where a journalist on a deadline can go put in a couple key search terms and find somebody that studies, you know, whatever they might be writing on. That was the idea. So we started that. I'm a founding member. I worked on it very hard for a long time, as we all did, Yana included. Very proud of that work. But one of the things we quickly noticed was that we were seeing a lot of really great progress in the discipline. Women were really feeling feeling more seen and heard as a result of our efforts, but very little change in terms of expert source representation. And like any academic that makes me not very fun at dinner parties, but fun in the academy, I started asking questions. Why is this happening? What is it that journalists are looking for? Where in the decision-making process is the breakdown such that it seems to be that instead of if you have an option that is a woman that's accessible, that's on this website where their contact information is right there, 
why would you go with this, this other person and not the woman? And so I wanted to understand, and we started to try to map out the decision-making process that journalists go through when they source experts sources, but it is really difficult to do. And in part, it's difficult to do because most of the research around journalists is very qualitative in nature. There's lots of interviews. So we have a really rich understanding of how journalists make sourcing decisions, for example, from their own perspective in their own words, which is great and important. But it turns out people are not necessarily very good at recalling exactly how they make decisions, right? People are not good stenographers of their own information processing, myself included. And so it's really hard to take from rich qualitative data. You know, at this point, your preference is this. At this point, your preference is this. These things are affecting that decision. Here's how you make that decision. Here's the outcome. So we wanted to try to do that. And that's what we set out to do. Okay. So what was your methodology? How did you, how did you measure that? That's a really important piece of this puzzle because it is really difficult to study how people make decisions, let alone how journalists make decisions, right? Journalists notoriously don't really like academics peering over their shoulder. I guess most people don't, but I don't know why. So because you had a positive interaction with academics, (laughs) obviously, but Uh, yeah, go on. No, I don't want them looking over my shoulder either. So to study something like decision-making, and this is part of where being trained as a political scientist helps, right? Because my background is in political psychology. And a lot of what I try to do is understand how people intake information and then output the decision. So to do that, though, you have to really triangulate because you can't observe how people make decisions, right? You can only model it. You can use experiments. So we did that. We conducted several experiments. In an experimental approach, you can randomize the treatment to really ensure that what you're isolating is the cause, right? And in this particular case, try to figure out what is exactly motivating or leading to the decisions journalists are making. So we did a bunch of experiments, but you know, this is a complicated issue. So we didn't stop there. We also did a big content analysis so that we could really understand what the outcome was so that we could then back up and try to figure out what journalists were doing to achieve that outcome, to make expert source landscape look the way it is. So we did content analysis experiments, and we also did some surveys of journalists as well. What was it that you found? What did this reveal? Were you able to come up with a conclusive answer as to maybe why it seemed there only be white men, although maybe that has changed to some degree, but did you get some sort of sense of that? Yeah. So we start with our content analysis, right? And the content analysis kind of lays the land, depicts what the current information environment is for expert sources. And we find that when we do this content analysis of expert sources, and I should note that we focus in the book and on academic expert sources, because it's sort of easier to define that population. But of course, you know, there's lots of different types of expert sources. So we look at particularly who gets into the New York Times as an expert source on politics. And what we find is that it is mostly men. So when we look at all expert sources in the New York Times, and this was the 2020 election, all expert sources in the New York Times, mostly men, mostly white men. I think the number is about 54% white men, something like 60 something percent men. And then when we look at political experts, so narrow it just to the people that are credentialed in political science, we find that the numbers are the same, right? Mostly men, mostly white men. So that then leaves us with a data point to explain. 
So we then go to journalists and we do a couple different survey experiments to say, okay, what is the set of preferences journalists have that are motivating this selection, right? We see white men in the news, but you and I know that lots of things happened before that point. So, okay, can we figure out what the, the initial impetus for that selection is? And we do a couple of experiments where we try to figure out what kind of expert journalists see as newsworthy. And we actually find that through the experiment, journalists are more likely to think that the woman researcher conducting research on women, women is newsworthy, more than male researchers conducting research and more than research that has no gender cue. And when we drill down on that particular experiment, what we actually find is not that journalists thought that women are more newsworthy, it's that they don't think the men are newsworthy which is completely antithetical to what we're seeing in the news, right? So we followed that up with something called a conjoint analysis. And a conjoint analysis is just a fancy term for an experiment where you get, you randomize the attributes of, of a profile of a person and then you ask them to pick between it. And part of the reason that matters is because each of the levels are randomized and there's lots of different attributes. So like, you know, this is used a lot of race research so that if you are a closet racist, there's so many different attributes that are in that particular profile, you have enough cover to always select the person that's non-white. In this particular scenario, we use the conjoint to try to figure out, okay, well, is really what's going on implicit gender bias, but it's just hard to trace back to the origin. But what we find is that, again, even when we do this sort of fancy experiment that is supposed to uncover or help prevent people from responding in a way that's more virtue signaling than true, we still see that journalists are more likely to want the non-white female expert source. So then we're left with a picture of expert sources in the news that's very white and male, but a set of preferences in an experimental studies from journalists that is not that. And so we went back to the drawing board and we said, okay, well, if journalists' preference aren't for white men, but white men are the ones making it to the news as expert sources, what is happening in the intervening points and decision-making that is leading to that outcome? And we do a couple more experiments. The first one we do, we ask journalists for their ideal expert source. And some journalists are assigned to a condition in which they're timed. So they only have 15 seconds to name that source. And some journalists get as much time as they want. And our idea here is we can mimic, it's of course not an accurate, like a completely true portraiture, but we can mimic newsroom pressures and see is it just so happens that white men are most accessible, like they're on top of the brain. And so when people are stressed out and under time pressure, they come up with that name right away. So we did that thinking maybe time pressure explains this phenomena. No. So whether journalists were timed or not, something like 70% of journalists offer white men as the expert source that they would prefer. And this is when we're saying, okay, imagine you can have anyone as an expert source, who would it be? And it doesn't matter the time pressure. So we go back to the drawing board again. We say, okay, could it be networks? So we do an analysis that borrows from network theory, which tries to gathered information from journalists regarding their last article, what the characteristics of expert sources that they sourced in that particular piece, and kind of get an idea of, of what networks might look like for journalists. And what we see there again is the first name that they mention as an expert source in a previous article is more likely to be a white man. 
The second name they mention as a recent expert source is more likely to be a white man and so on and so on and so forth, okay? So networks are very clearly, or it seem from this particular test, seem to be primarily made up of white men. So then to kind of seal the deal and really try to understand what's going on, we say, okay, <laughs> when I say that this is a passion project, I mean it, right? We were, we were not gonna let this dog lie. So we say, okay, well, maybe it's the experts. And we go and we survey experts. <laughs> and, and they were quite we, nice. No. They were no. Yeah, sometimes they were very accessible. They, we can and, be very difficult, I I will say that I understand. off the top. Academics are notoriously difficult. I commiserate with journals from that perspective. But what we found when we talked to experts is that both women and men and people of color all report receiving media requests at equal rates. So it's not that one group is getting asked more often, at least not from the expert source population we sampled. But what we did hear is that men are slightly more likely to say yes, white men in particular. And, and this is super fascinating from my perspective, I know you talk about, about this a lot in your podcast, women and people of color were more likely to report having negative post-interview experiences and that affecting their decision to say yes. So particularly faculty of color were saying, they get more threats, more harassment, more mixed feedback following an interview that then affects their decision making. Those experts are the ones who are getting the, the negative feedback you know, that goes to them. Is there any sense that the newsroom gets any of that, a sense of that, and that that somehow impacts their choice? That, you know, the last time we had that person on, we got a ton of really negative calls maybe we should try somebody else. That's a really good question. That, that feels really hard to observe, but like kind of anecdotally, because a lot of my other work looks at online abuse and harassment of journalists, I do think, and I have friends that are in this space that are both expert sources, but also journalists, right? I do hear stories of that a journalist would really like to speak to a non-white person or a woman. You know, for example, journalists covering Elon Musk often would like their sources to look more diverse. But the problem is that when you talk about Elon Musk in the news, people come after you, right? And this is a situation where if you have a relationship with a source that is a non-white male, you may want to talk to that person, but you may also know that like this person is about to get a barrage of emails in their inbox threatening to kill them, right? I can't imagine that these considerations are completely divorced from each other. It's just really hard. Those considerations are, are more difficult to map out. And they're also, unfortunately, increasingly more timely and, and frequent, right? You know, we've had guests that we've invited on this, on the podcast. I had a guest who, even though she had written a book, didn't want to come on for that, that very reason because of the subject of the book. She was concerned that she was going to get like blowback from it. And so she just wanted to go ahead and, and do what she needed to do to get, take care of the book, but not necessarily participate in a podcast about it. And then also hearing from a recent guest that they had somebody who was stalking them online. Yeah. So yeah, it's very real and present threat. And lots of times academics do not receive support from their institutions, much like journalists do not receive support by and large from their newsrooms. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things you were, you were talking about was in the book, is this idea of newsworthiness and, you know, how that goes into choosing who is going to come on and speak. Are there certain types of guests that it's more news? I think I kind of touched on this where you're saying that 
that male journalists would think that a woman researcher would be, make a better guest, would be more newsworthy, I guess. What is sort of driving that? Yeah, so I think that was really an interesting finding. We, you know, just kind of our working hypothesis going into this was maybe, you know, like most of us, journalists have certain sets of gender biases that are subconsciously affecting their decisions, right? And that's no knock on journalists. They're humans just like the rest of us. We all operate with these implicit biases. And that that's why we're seeing the sort of mostly white male source landscape that we see. But what we actually see is in terms of our experiments is that people express more interest and more perceived newsworthiness of women researchers. But that's really driven by the fact that they don't see male researchers as being as newsworthy. And so I don't exactly know what's going on there other than I can speculate a little bit. I can speculate that perhaps like you've kind of alluded to, because the academy is still very much dominated by men, women are novel, right? And that meets certain news values of newsworthiness and of interest. It could also be that journalists, despite the kind of criticism in terms of source diversity, would prefer to speak to more non-white sources and more women, but just don't get the opportunity or don't have the access or don't have them in their network. And so would then perceive them as being more newsworthy, but for whatever reason, when it comes to game time, aren't selecting those sources. This touches on a lot of things we've talked about on the, on the podcast and diversity in newsrooms, the desire to have diversity in sources for your stories that reflect the audience that's affected by whatever the story that you're writing about, the story choice that you're making, you're going to view something very differently than maybe someone of another race or someone of another gender. And also because of these are the people that you're comfortable talking to and, and interacting with. And so just at some sort of base level inside yourself, you know, that is what you feel comfortable doing. If I've learned nothing over the last, you know, five to 10 years in doing this podcast is, is the need to prod yourself to change and to take that extra step. I think of, I'm going to quote Kevin Smith here. I remember him once talking about this phenomena where your future self is a better person than you. And that shows out because every time you have to throw out vegetables, it's because when you're shopping, you're thinking, oh, I'll eat those in a week because that's healthy for me. But you never do. You never change. You still continue to follow the same thing. It's a lot of that. We recognize that we need to be more diverse. We need to talk to different sources, but we don't because that we'd be pushing ourselves and we, we want to be comfortable. Absolutely. I think that's part of the twists and turns this project have followed is really illuminating, right? Because we just quite simply set out to say, okay, well, is it just implicit bias going on? Because that's something we understand. There's a lot of research on that. There's interventions to help that. But it's the story is more complicated, right? It isn't that journalists have a biased set of preferences that are then manifesting in the sort of demography of source experts. It's way more complicated, like most of life, right? It's that the academy itself is not representative, that there are not enough women and non-white scholars in the academy, and that those imbalances, that lack of representation, then translates into source expertise because journalists are requesting experts at similar rates, right? And so part of it is like, it's institutions, baby, right? Like it's institutions, stupid, right? Like institutions 
have a big effect on like the kind of even population of expert sources that journals have available to them. So there's that, but then it's also the information environment for women and people of color is hostile. And that's something that journalists also can't control, right? So it's nuanced. I think a lot of times our tendency is like when we see lack of source diversity is like journalists are being lazy. Journalists are biased. Journalists aren't doing their work. They, if they could just try harder, like setting aside the fact that like, God forbid, journalists need another thing to worry about in like a very already hostile place for journalists, right? Setting that aside, it, that's not actually what the research shows is going on. It's way more layered and complicated and it's bringing about larger questions larger dynamics in the academy and in, in journalism writ large about representation and diversity that really need to be addressed. It's, it's the system, man. It's baked in. It's baked in. This is something that's not like, oh, we just pull this scab off. It'll be okay. It'll heal itself. This is layers deep. Yeah. And that's part of why I wanted to do this, right? Like, I was getting really frustrated in part because of my work with them and also no stuff. I was hearing two avenues. One was it's journalists' fault. And the second was it's experts' fault. And the work shows neither are true. Both are actors within institutions that reflect broader issues with diversity, right? And these institutions then interact and the product is that the source expert experts we see are mostly white men. It is no mystery how that happens when you have an academy that's mostly white men, when you have an industry that's also mostly white and male, and then these two institutions interact and create meaning in a way that reflects the institutions themselves, right? In a society that has systemic racism, that sets up structures to maintain certain social strata, and even to the point of historically there have been forces that have pushed back against people who are trying to make change or people who are in a particular group who are speaking up and shouldn't be speaking up because they didn't know their place. And part of it is like also when you when we're offering critiques of source diversity without understanding the whole very complicated picture, what we're doing is either asking newsrooms to put further onus on the reporters that may not have the time or resources to change their sourcing patterns, right, without giving them those time or resources. And or we're telling experts that they're not doing enough. And the experts we're talking to, right, are women and people of color. <laughs> and saying that the onus is on you because you're not saying yes enough or you're not giving good enough sound bites. Neither of those things are conducive to changing anything, right? So that's part of why I think I'm hoping that, you know, when people see this work, they're not like, oh, another academic. I can't curse on this podcast, can I? But, you know, crapping on journalists. <laughs> I'm not trying to do that, right? In fact, what we're hoping to do is to offer nuance and potential solutions to this issue that we know journalists care about, that we know experts care about, but that has so far lacked nuance, right? I feel like we could be like picking at this for a very long time, but, but so I try to offer hope here. I haven't, I haven't asked this a long time in a, in a podcast. What are our marching orders? What do we need to do? If somebody hears this, what do they need to do? What do you think yeah, they need to do? I think it points to a couple things. Quite simply, if you're a journalist and you care about these things, the easiest fix, and I put easy in quotes, right? Because it's all relative. It's not that easy. But the most simple directive is that you have to request interviews from women and people of color at higher rates if you want women and people of color to be represented in source experts, because we know that they're more likely to say no. 
because we know that white men are more likely to say yes, the way to change those numbers is to ask more women and more people of color. Ed Yong has written about this extensively and about his own audits of his source experts and his own efforts to diversify. And he speaks anecdotally to this particular point, which is that he realized that he was going to have to do more work and engage in more effort to source non-white men. And that was just, it had to become part of his process if that's something that he really cared about. So that is step number one. And I know easier said than done for many people who are already constrained in time and resources. The second thing I think is that and this is kind of bigger and pie in the sky, but the bigger thing is that we all need to start paying more attention in thinking about and having conversations around how we support experts in the news that get harassed online and how we support journalists that are getting harassed online, right? This is a piece of the puzzle because at the end of the day, we can all say that we want more source diversity. And I think many of your listeners do, but if we are sourcing people just to kind of you know, leave them out to the wolves to actually cause them more harm because of, of the sort of blowback, then what are we really doing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we got what we needed out of them. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Right. There's the door. I, right. hope, I hope you get home safely. Okay. A lot to think about in this. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Katie, stay in touch. How can people find uh, this book? Well, it's on Amazon, so you can Google Constructing Expertise in the News. You can find me on Twitter. I recently posted the link to it. Yeah, published by Cambridge, so you can find it there too if you'd like, or find it at your local bookstore, which I know is supposed to be what we're saying anyway. Don't go to that other place. <laughs> it's part of the problem. I know, I know. Uh, we can't we can't say it because they'll turn us off. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> I Well, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Let's not find out. Let's not find out. Katie, <laughs> thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>